all of a sudden, you know, the ceiling caved in onto their desk and there's a fire all around. We're under attack and then the line went dead and he was killed right there. All right, welcome to another episode of the Rescue Stormer Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Vince. Today we have the most anticipated guest and I'm saying the most. I mean, we've been talking about this for ever since the show's been started. We finally got a retired Navy SEAL on the show today. We're going to talk about SEAL Team 6. We're going to talk about the Cold War. We're also going to talk about the Pentagon during 9-11. So he was actually stationed at the Pentagon during that period. If you're training to become one of these Navy SEALs, then please do check out our site, rescueswimmermindset.com. And you can do all kinds of underwater training, just as the underwater demolition men have to do in BUDS. So check out the rescuesformermindset.com. There's underwaters. We break down underwater form, underwater technique, the science of breath holding. We have the win the day program where it's a start to finish training program. You're going you're gonna to have weightlifting. You're going to have body weight workouts. You're going to have underwater workouts and pool workouts. So check it out. That's win the day. Again, rescuesformermindset.com. You know where to go. And leave a rating review on the Apple Podcast and do whatever you can to support us. We're on YouTube. Here we go. My guest, retired Captain Bob Schultz. All right, Captain Bob Schultz, thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. I used to be a captain. I don't go by that anymore. Go by Bob or Mr. Schultz? Bob is what I prefer. Excellent. So, uh, Bob, we were put in touch by your daughter, Roberta, back in Knowles is where I met her. She was my, my expedition leader. And you told me when we spoke briefly that you were an expedition leader back in 2005, was it? I went through the course in 2005. I was an instructor. Um, I've been an instructor. I'm still an instructor with Knowles. I haven't instructed since 2019 because of the COVID thing. And so I'm not sure how much I will continue to instruct, but I'm an instructor. She's actually a course leader, an expedition leader. I am a someone who is an instructor that goes along with the expedition leader. And we'll talk about Knowles a little bit maybe down the road because I know Knowles definitely taught me tremendous leadership skills. And I'm sure even yourself potentially as a Navy SEAL in, in a leadership position, you probably learned some things from them yep. as well. But I think we should start with your Navy SEAL background because, again, you're the first Navy SEAL we're gonna ha- we've had on the podcast. We're really excited. We want to know a little bit about the background of Navy SEALs. So if you could just start by telling us your story as far as when did you join the SEALs and why? Well, I was in college during the Vietnam War, and but I had a ROTC scholarship, Navy ROTC scholarship. And I wasn't terribly interested in going into the Navy, but I had to pay back my, my scholarship. And so when it came time to do that, I was looking for something to do and I wasn't sure what to do. And so I had been a wrestler for many years in high school and some in college. And somebody told me about the Navy SEAL program, which was not well known at the time. As a matter of fact, there's very few people had ever heard of it. They'd heard of underwater demolition team. And I looked into that. It looked like something that would be fun to do for four years, and then I could uh, get out and go do something else. And so uh, it fit with my athletic background. And so that's I joined it not really knowing much about it and not really knowing much about BUDS training. And so that's why I went into it. And I started training in 1975 and graduated in the summer of 75. It was only six months long then. 75, that's right around when Saigon fell? 
Saigon fell while I was in training. And so all, all of my instructors had been to Vietnam. And, and so uh, I felt like in listening to their stories, I felt as much, I felt like I'd almost been to Vietnam when I got through SEAL training because I'd heard so much about it. Then I continued to do a lot of reading about it because all the NCOs that I worked with afterwards when I came in the teams had all been were Vietnam era vets. Most of them were. And, and so I, I did do a lot of reading about Vietnam and I actually just finished a fabulous book about Vietnam just a couple of days ago, one of the best I've read about it. So it's still very much part of my heritage. Now the guys graduate from SEAL training. Now all of their instructors have been to Iraq or Afghanistan. That war is more or less over. So they're getting all of this. They're kind of where I was 45 years ago, uh, being taught by people who were in a war that's now over. What were the dynamics like as far as these instructors that had been through that war? Was it leaking into the training in any sense, oh, shape yeah. or form? For sure. They all that's what their whole frame of reference was, was running operations against the Viet Cong, largely against the Viet Cong, because we worked, the SEALs worked against the Viet Cong, the Marines and the Army, the more larger conventional forces worked against the North Vietnamese Army. And so their, their mindset was going into jungles, going into rivers and canals, and and so, uh, and we had one of my instructors was a Medal of Honor recipient, and uh, and we had several who were other high combat awards. We we heard about it a lot, and, and that's and they were training us to fight the way they had been trained to fight, and the way they had survived fighting. Where cha the challenge is today, the same thing is happening. The guys that are training our guys now are training them for that war, and. I don't believe, and neither does the leadership, that we're going to be fighting against Stone Age uh, people in the mountains of, of a underdeveloped country again. And so how do we change the training to, to what the more likely scenarios are against a much more sophisticated enemy uh, in, in, in other settings? And so that it's an interesting, similar dilemma. And how would you train somebody for something? basically for a future battle that you don't have experience of. You have to, you have to get your futurists together and look at what the possibilities are. And they think about, they look at the scenarios. There, there is a, a whole science and art of looking out into the future and projecting. And, it, and so mostly we're looking at having to potentially fight against a more sophisticated enemy all of the things that we take for granted, which, which is having complete command of the skies uh, and having, being able to fly in and out, having all of the sensors that, that, that we can use to find them and assuming that they don't have them. Well, what if we're fighting somebody who also has a sophisticated air force and also has night vision devices and thermal imaging devices and all of the technology that we have and have used uh, that's going to require a quite a bit different degree of sophistication in the way we do our operations. Without speaking to off the cuff, what would you predict the future potentially looks like and against which enemy? I have, I really have no idea. Uh, people are now tr preparing. And I think that's, I think it makes sense to prepare for a, what they call a near peer competitor, which would be uh, potentially fighting uh, against um, Russian or Chinese 
forces or forces who have been supplied by and advised by Russians and Chinese and other parts of the world who will have quite a bit more equipment and sophistication than the Taliban in Afghanistan or ISIS in Iraq or Syria. Um, and so what if that's the case, and, and some of those scenarios may take place in Africa, they may take place in South uh, Southeast Asia or Southwest Asia, um, we've got to be we've got to be a lot more careful. I don't want to get too philosophical with this question. We'll get back on track. But do you think we'll, humanity will ever get to a point where war is minimal as far as mass casualties and battles between countries? Well, it's already moving in that direction. We've had far fewer people killed in wars in the last uh, in the last since World War II than we have ever had in history. And so, uh, yeah, we we were pretty upset about having lost fifty thousand people in Vietnam. We lost. I mean, there were fifty thousand. We'd lose fifty thousand people in a day in World War One, and World War Two. So, uh, I mean. Any, every, what, what would Stalin say? A single life is a, is a tragedy, but uh, a lot of lives is just a statistic. And, and so um, I know I don't think so. We're going to get to that in my lifetime or yours. Uh, but the war, nature of war is going to change. Uh, and, uh, and the stakes are getting higher with uh, certainly with uh, chemical, biological, nuclear issues of being proliferated and, and, and bad actors having access to those things. Let's get back to your training. So Buds, is anything specific in your training based on that Vietnam history? Like, do you, would you have an example of something that the instructor specifically did that was, this is what they learned in the field in Vietnam? Well, we did a lot more stuff, riverine things, because they were doing a lot of riverine things. And the, a lot of the patrolling techniques that they were using then, we're still using today. Uh, but we also have technology today that we didn't have back then. So we were learning the fundamentals of small unit patrolling, which is not much different today than, than it was back then. And though, again, it's augmented by GPS, <laughs> Guys don't get lost as much as we used to get lost. And, uh, and the night vision technology is much better. And, and the thermal imaging and the, and the air top cover support, having a platform, an eye in the sky, they can see you and every one of your people and see where the bad guy is and you can talk to them. And I know people who were in, in operations where they're talking to a predator who's saying, hey, there's, there's a bunch of bad guys coming. And they've got 50 caliber machine guns mounted on their on their Toyota Land Cruisers. You better get the hell out of there. And and otherwise they would never would have known. And they you know would pull out. We didn't have those kind of options in the past. So, but the basics, the fundamentals of patrolling and fields of fire and maintaining accountability of your people and and things of that nature are still still valid today. Really broad question here, but what would be one of the biggest things that the U.S. Armed Forces learned in Vietnam as far as how to operate in combat? It's interesting because I just finished that book that I said, which was, which was so good. Uh, I, I lead another reading group of, of all Navy SEALs, and we just read this book called Matterhorn, which is written by a, a Marine who was a Rhodes Scholar and a Navy Cross recipient. And, uh, and, and this is the way the Marines fought 
And one of the guys came back to me and said, boy, if we'd have just fought with more unconventional warfare in that war, we maybe we could have won. I, I don't think so. I think that one of the things that we learned in that war, uh, that's just my perspective. Other people will disagree with me. And I think we've learned it again in the Taliban, uh, fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan and possibly in Iraq as well. Unless, unless the people we're supporting, the host nation, come, unless they've got a really strong belief in what they're fighting for, we can't, we can't come in and, and inject them with that belief. And if we're fighting somebody else, the bad guys <clears throat> in that country, the revolutionaries, the insurrectionists, believe so strongly in what they're doing that they're willing to keep fighting and to keep dying for it, we're not going to win. And we would not have won that war in Vietnam if we'd done a whole bunch of other things because people weren't fighting for anything. The government in Vietnam was not strong enough to, to, to earn anybody's support uh, or loyalty. Whereas the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army, they, they believed in what they were doing much more so than either our forces or the Arvin did. Yeah, and that's I've read a couple of books as well, and it, it's just the commitment as well of the populace in yep. sacrificing themselves fully for yep. their country. And that shows in the history because there's a lot of people that tried to take over Vietnam in different ways, the French. It was the French, the, Ch uh, the Chinese also uh, struggled with that. And, and that's basically, that's how we won the Revolutionary War. Likewise, we, we had people who were much more committed than the, than the Brits who were being sent over here from King, by King George. And we just kept coming at them and coming at them and coming at them. And finally they went, okay. I recall, I read this book about, I forget the name. It's basically a, the most renowned and probably a advantageous spy for the Viet Cong. I don't recall his name, but he basically came to America, studied at very renowned, prestigious universities, went back and was there in Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh. He was, I believe a journalist and he was able to get the most detailed intel to get back to the Viet Cong. And I think he was hiding in spring rolls. It was like mm. he had somebody picking it up. I think and, there's, a, there's another book that I read recently that was written and it got the Pulitzer Prize, I believe, called The Sympathizer, which is a novel uh, and a similar type story. Um, but it's a novelized version of a guy who was embedded in the group that was allowed to leave, that was left Vietnam and came over here in order to gather intelligence and come and and uh, and so in in the novel case, he then, while living here, he's still reporting back to his bosses in Vietnam, but he's also slowly getting converted to uh, to our way of life, and they became suspicious of him. Very great, great book by the way, beautifully written. Simp the sympathizer. I have a whole list of books you've recommended me now and they're on my Amazon list. Put that one on there too. Yeah. Okay. Most people that listen to this podcast are ambitious about heading down some kind of elite military route, whether that be rescue swimmer, Navy SEAL, Air Force PJ, whatever. So I think a good question would be what was the most challenging part of your training in becoming a SEAL, whether that be physically or mentally when you were starting off? Oof. Well, I think, one, in my case, I really didn't know what I was getting into. And so maybe, and that was probably an advantage because, uh, you know, would I have gone there if I, yeah, I would have, because I was pretty confident in myself. I've been, I had been through a lot of tough training and football and wrestling and whatnot and was confident and wanted to take on the challenge. 
I would I tell people that when you've got to be you've got to learn you've got to put yourself through difficult circumstances. If this is a t if, if the first time you've ever, ever been through a really tough program is when you go to Buds, your chances of getting through are, are not that great. And Knowles, for example, is a is a good a good start for uh, for people. We spend a lot of time getting comfortable out in the mountains with other people, having learned to work with other people, being being uncomfortable nervous having to make decisions i also tell people of the probably the best athletic endeavor that would prepare somebody for for not just buds but for uh cct or pj training both those are really great programs um would be adventure racing What's because that? adventure racing uh, requires a wide a breadth of skills and you've got to do that under you got to continue to perform night and day when you're tired, when you're exhausted, and you just got to keep going. What's adventure racing? Two, three, four, five day races. Uh, usually two or three people. Sometimes they raid Galois is like four or five people, and the whole group has got to get through. And they and they have to do. There's everything from kayaking and paddling to uh, rock climbing and biking and everything. And and it goes. And you got to figure out how to how and when to rest and sleep. And and uh, and my son did adventure racing. He uh, he did several races uh, with his one of his best friends when he was at the Naval Academy, and both of them were back to back honor men in their classes. And I would probably say that some the adventure racing probably had something to do with it because going through Hell Week is kind of that way. Only on an adventure race, you don't have anybody screaming at you, get making you try to motivate you to keep get you angry to keep going you have to do it all on your own that's cool i've never heard of that no it's a it's a it's a huge international sport and uh and and if somebody's going to get into it they have adventure races i would start with like a 10 or 12 hour one and then go to a two-day one and then graduate up to three day and so and hopefully as a partner with partners hopefully we'll have your son on the podcast who's still an active navy seal as well correct he is not sure whether what the protocols are for an active duty guy speaking. Yep, that's but why Cody's not on to with but us today. His, uh, the guy who he ran with, ran them with, um, is out of the Navy now, and he was an honor man of his class, and he's actually been on Tim Ferriss's podcast. Uh, oh, cool. Nick Norris is his name. Yeah, right Nick Norris, great. Now, I, I still want to know, what was like the most challenging drill for you at Bud's? Was there something where you were like, I might not make this? Uh, probably the third or fourth day in. Uh, the only time I said I wasn't, you know, I was just, I was really down and I was going, I don't know if I can do this. It was probably at two o'clock in the morning in the pool. Um, it was cold and they were just having to sit there in the pool and the pool was wasn't that cold. I mean, it was maybe 78 degrees or so, but sitting still in the pool two in the morning um, was, was, I just remember being pretty miserable. Um, and the, and I, and a couple of other stages where I was really miserable when we were paddling our boats. Uh, and I tell people going through hell and hell week is the hardest part and that you watch your emotions go up and down and up and down and you have to expect that. And, uh, and I tell, tell guys getting ready for Hell Week, and I think this would be true of any one of the elite uh, programs, is that when you get to that point where you don't think you can keep going, you just keep going. And if you don't get to that point, 
where you don't think you can keep going, then you haven't got your money's worth. Because their whole the whole purpose is to get to get you to that point and have you keep going anyway. Yeah. I've talked about on this podcast, I don't think it's the right mindset, but it, it was mine going through rescue summer school. I was always thinking, all right, I'm, I'll, I'll quit after this drill because yeah. this is a nightmare. I don't think I'm going to make this, but it, I'm not going to quit on this one. I'll just quit after this. And then the, I'd be done with that drill. And I would think, hmm, all right, let's just, let's just wait and see what the next one is. And then they would say, it. I was like, okay, that's not that bad. I'll try that. And then I would do it. And I'll say, oh, this is pretty bad. I'll, I'll quit the next one. And it was just every time until months, days, months go by and it was over. Not, I don't think that's necessarily the right mindset, but well, I think it is the right mindset. That's exactly what we tell guys is, uh, is you just get to the next, if you're on a run, you think you can quit, you just get to the next telephone pole. Yep. And, uh, and then you get to that next telephone pole. And, and, uh, and if you're thinking about Friday and Monday of hell week, you may, you're probably not going to get there. But you just think about getting through this evolution. You get through this evolution, and I got just got to get through the next one. Yep. You don't think out beyond that. Most of the guys quit in Hell Week uh, on Monday night because they start thinking about it. Oh, I got this whole night to go through. That last one was miserable. I don't know if I don't. I can't do that. Rather than okay, it's Monday night, and they're trying to get you to quit. They want to see who's who's going to fall for the thing. This is not. But you, your strategy is perfect. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Marcus Luttrell and uh, and Lone Survivor. Yeah. Um, well, when he got shot in uh, in Afghanistan, and he had his back was broken, and he was—I mean, he was a mess. And the bad guys were looking for him. He knew they were looking for him, and he couldn't walk and couldn't move. He was—he was looking out one rock at a time. He would pull himself up to that rock, and then he would look out another rock that was maybe two feet out, and say, "I'll get to that one." And he'd get there, and then he'd get to the next one. And so, um, so I think you're what exactly what you said is, is exactly what we tell people. Don't think about anything other than just getting through this evolution. And usually then, you know, you find that when it's over, you get a little breath of, you know, a little bit of break and, and, uh, and you're good for, and you're in, and also you find a little energy and also you're not in by yourself. Talk to other people. When you're down, talk to somebody else. When you're up, find the guys who's down and build them up. Because your yeah. emotions will go like this. And when you're up, you need to go help the guys that are down. When you're down, you need those guys to come help you. And one guy who retired as a SEAL Admiral, three-star Admiral, uh, told me that he was going to quit during Hell Week. And his uh, friend of his in Hell Week, he was, I mean, he was already made a decision to quit. And he, and he was telling his friend, I'm going to quit. And his friend said, no, you can't. You can't quit. You can't leave me. Quit later, but at least hang with me for a while. And he hung with him for a while. And then he, his energy bounced back up after another meal, and he went on to graduate and did a full career and retired as a three-star admiral. Yeah, I remember having that similar conversation with some individuals as well, like telling them, don't quit. Don't quit on me because I'm not going to quit on you. And it, even though it's not quite team evolutions in Rescue Summer School, to me, I always saw it as a team. You know, when you're underwater, struggling, thinking you're going to pass out well you can look to your left and you look to your right and that you know you don't really know because you can't hear them but you can look in their eyes and think there's a good chance you're suffering just as much as i am but i won't quit because you're still kicking too yeah yeah so you get through buds and we talked a little bit about you, you going to is it norway 
your next station? No, I went to, I did, I did a tour at underwater demolition team 21 and then I went over to seal team two and did a platoon commander tour there. And then I got, after that, I got the opportunity to go be an exchange officer with the German Navy seals in the Baltic. So, uh, when I, and I did that for two years up in a little town called Eckernferda and worked with those guys, uh, Really great organization. It's much smaller than the SEALs. There's only a total of 40 of them, entire one team. And their focus is all ex almost exclusively in the water. And they were also great parachutists. And so I spent two years with them, and then I came back. These are German, as in not Navy SEALs from the U.S. in Germany, but German Navy SEALs? Yeah, they call themselves the Kampfschwimmer Company. That's Combat Swimmer Company. It's all one word in German. Is it? tailored partly after the U.S. Navy SEALs, or they've got their own thing going on? They are tailored more after the Einsatzkommando from World War II. They had a pretty a pretty capable group of combat swimmers and maritime commandos working for the Third Reich. And, uh, and after, in the 1950s, when the German military decided to rebuild, we decided to let them rebuild and they joined NATO, in the 1950s, they formed up their own uh, commando units and included a maritime commando unit. And, and so I was there in 1980 to 82. I was the third exchange officer with them. What were they training for? What type of missions? They were training primarily uh, in case the Soviet Union uh, attacked Europe and, and and took over Germany, and so their missions were primarily against Soviet targets in what is now, what was then East Germany and Poland. And so they were training for that sort of thing, and primarily commando unit, uh, small groups of guys going ashore, but not very far, coming back to the water, uh, in uh, harbor sneak attacks against ships and harbor facilities, that sort of thing. Cool. Still what they do. Cool, then we get to your service during the Cold War, which was in Norway? No, it was in Scotland. Uh, I went to be the EXO of the, we had a unit in Scotland, which, uh, which trained with all of our counterparts, mostly in Northern Europe. And that included the Norwegians, and we did a lot of work with the Norwegians. And because the anticipation was that the Soviet Union would come down from the Kola Peninsula up in the very northern part of Russia, take Northern Norway and come down. And so we developed a close relationship with the Norwegian, our Norwegian counterparts, the Marine Jaeger company and trained with them a lot. What were your duties as far as training them and preparing them for basically well, a Russian Actually, they, tra they trained us. Uh, they, they were, they were really good. Uh, they lived uh, in that area. And so we brought a couple of, we brought to the table our ability to work with the Navy, the U.S. fleet, and so again, theoretically, we would have gone in. They would have, we would have gone in with them. Their people were much better on snow, on skis and the snow and the mountains than we were because they lived there all the time. We would go with them. We would go out to targets and we would use laser target designation. We had the gear. We would talk to the, the air crews, and we would be able to put precision munitions on targets with them. And we would also have liaison with other U.S. forces that might be working in that area. They were training us 
and operating in commando operations in their in their AO. And you started ta- talking to me about the history of where their training sourced from in World War II. Yeah, there's a there's a book called The Shetland Bus, which was about um, the insertion of and they worked out of Shetland a bunch of uh, and I think they were associated with the SOE, the British SOE, that was that was training Norwegians to to and and getting them inserted into uh, what was then occupied Nazi occupied Norway, and the guy who wrote the book The Shetland busted a bunch of different stories of operations that they did, and there are some really incredible ones. And I found studying the the uh, the guerrilla operations and that were run against the Nazis in Norway fascinating. And one of those stories in the Shetland bus was the story about the, that he was fascinated by. He wrote a separate book called We Die Alone, in which, uh, in which the individual was, the operation was busted on insertion. A bunch of people were killed, including Nazis and whatnot, and one guy escaped. And, and the whole story is about his escape uh, in, uh, on that initial insertion and how he survived being hunted all the way going in the wintertime all the way across Norway and got, finally got into Finland. What's his name? Jan Ballsrud or something like that. Yeah. But We Die Alone is the book. I've read it a couple of times. It's, and anybody who reads it can't, I mean, it's like stay up all night long reading it. I got the audiobook from my local library actually for that one. Did you? Yeah. And you know, did you listen to it? I only started it. I wanted to try to knock out a little bit before our podcast because I think it's an incredible story. How far did he travel? I'm not sure, um, but he was actually it was really. I mean, he had to. He had help, but he would have to be very careful getting. I mean, the Norwegians did not like the Nazis, but any Norwegian that was caught supporting a saboteur would have been killed, and their family killed. So he had to find people who were willing to put themselves at great risk to support him, to keep him alive. And then they would then, while, they, while they're feeding him and keeping him from freezing to death and giving him some stuff, they've got him hidden and they're covering their tracks. They're meanwhile, through their, through their trusted network, finding somebody else who, who is trustworthy that they can take him off their hands and get him someplace to the next, next place. And sometimes they would say, okay, we've given you some food. Here's some skis. Now, if you can get to this village on the other side of these mountains, go there and I will somehow get word to my friend Jans uh, that you're to keep an eye out for you in this area. I mean, is that kind of steps. And finally, he was at the end, he was staying alive in a snow cave up on a glacier and people would just go up to that snow cave and give him food. But he had to, he had to, with his own, with a pocket knife, he had to take his own toes off because they were, they were, they were frozen and gangrenous. That's a story of resilience. Yeah. I look forward to that one. Yeah. You'll, you'll like it. I promise. Okay. So what is your actual duty when you're there as an XO? I'm just basically doing XO stuff. I mean, managing the command. Uh, keeping keeping the seals, trying to keep them out of trouble, which is almost a full time job. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm basically in in Scotland, and we have two platoons of seals there, one or two, sometimes two, one. And when we don't have, when we can't keep them busy, they're going into town, and um, and there are all the guys in Scotland at that point were mostly mostly young men were out of work on the dole. 
and there's some pretty good-looking Scottish women who thought that that uh, getting a Yank, all the Yanks come in, they got money. The Scot, the Scottish men don't. The girls are are being drawn to the guys with money. The American confident, you know, athletic young guys with money. The local guys weren't too happy about that. There were some, there were some a lot of fights, and a number of our guys married Scottish girls. How did those fights turn out between seals and Scottish? Depended on the on the size and the and, the, and of the Scottish guy. I don't know. I, I I never really think of a seal getting into a bar fight type of thing, but I would assume if that did occur, the seal would come out on top just due to his training. Well, there is there's a there's a myth that the seals have all had a lot of hand to hand combat and whatnot, and that's just not true. It wasn't true then. Actually, they get a fair amount of it now, as as part of the whole basic training package. But back then. If you had it, you got it was something you did on your own. Now it's built in, and the reason why it's built in now is, is because particularly in the war in Afghanistan, uh, if you go into a house and people think that you're a threat, and you don't, uh, if you don't have any other option but to shoot the guy, then you're going to be killing people who we don't want to kill. So we want to be able to escalate force up and down depending on the demands of the circumstances, and and. Having good skills in in hand to hand can allow you to disable somebody or hurt them without killing them. And uh, and the most elite forces will only use the amount of violence which is absolutely necessary to resolve the situation, and have the judgment to make that call. Really young troops like uh, like nineteen year old Marines or Rangers. Uh, don't have that level of maturity and sophistication. They have kind of a two speeds on and off. And what we expect of our SEALs, our Army Special Forces guys and CCT uh, PJ guys is to be older, more mature, and to be able to have the judgment to, to ratchet up violence to the requirement and then ratchet it back down. And that includes, particularly in close quarter battles and in, in going house to house, having the skills to resolve situation without having to kill the people that you're engaged with. So what type of hand-to-hand combat are SEALs currently undergoing? Uh, I'm not too current on it, uh, so I haven't been through it. I've watched some of the training. Um, I do know uh, a few years ago what they were doing. I went through a little bit of it myself at the very end of my career just out of interest. But but uh, it's a combination of, of – and, and you can't you, – some of the mixed martial arts stuff uh, – but you trying to do that with body armor on and all of your kit and a gun, uh, it's a different fight then. And so one of the things you try to do is you, you use your, your, your weapon, your, your um, AR-15 or whatever you've got there as part of your tool, as a tool to pop somebody in the head without shooting them um, and butt stroking and that sort of thing. That's, that's part of it. And also... You know, how to break holds, how to how to uh, how to disable somebody without killing them, those sorts of things. Jujitsu holds, and and I don't know a lot about it now because I haven't been through it, but it's it's a lot more sophisticated now than it was when I went through. Any striking training per se, aside from weapon strikes? Probably. Yeah. Um, okay. I I don't know. Yeah. One thing we had a green beret that we served with that collateral over to becoming a rescue swimmer. And he, we talked to him a little bit, asked him some questions about combat and he was addressing if 
if it was a fair fight, we had made a drastic mistake. So, cause I think we had asked a, a similar question. Do you ever have to do hand to hand combat and whatnot? And he, he said, if we got ourselves into that situation, something would have gone very wrong. There's no such thing as a fair fight. At least that's not what we shoot for. I think there's there's an argument to be made there. Uh, you don't want it to be a fair fight. If you, I mean, you go in with, with the intention of of being in a superior position all the time. But sometimes sometimes it isn't a fair fight. Sometimes you go in thinking that you've got this target and, and there's a whole bunch of people you don't know are there. Or they've got weapons you don't know are there. And if it becomes unfair and the other side has the advantage, uh, the whole issue of ratcheting up and down becomes basically ratcheting up. Because you, because uh, then you, then you're in a fight for your life. They're not interested in saving your life. And so, uh, if if it gets to that point, then you've got to be able to use deadly force and use it unsparingly. Near the end of your career, you finished by working in the Pentagon. Is that right? My second to the last tour was in the Pentagon. My last tour was at the Naval Academy. I was there. I was there, there on nine eleven. Yeah. Were you in the Pentagon when nine eleven? happen? Well, I was working as the senior military assistant to the assistant secretary of defense for special operations, low intensity conflict. That's a mouthful of a title, but that's yeah. what my job was. And on the night on, on September 11th, 2001, that day I was, uh, my assistant was, had the day off and, and I, and I looked at the calendar. And one of the things I tried to do when I was there was every day, try to get to the gym for my own mental and physical health. And that day I'm, it was unusual. The morning was was open and the afternoon was really busy. So that morning I went to the gym and I went for a run. And on, I, as I came back into the Pentagon, uh, I, while I was running, I remembered something that needed to be changed in the afternoon schedule. And I, as I came run ran back into the Pentagon, there was a, there was a desk there at the old athletic club that, the, that was at the Pentagon and there was somebody there I said, I need to use your phone to call my office. And I called him. And I said, Hey, listen, we need to change this afternoon's schedule because so-and-so is not going to be coming until later and whatnot. And the sergeant picked up the phone in the office. He said, uh, sir, we've been trying to get a hold of you for the last uh, 45 minutes. The complete calendar is wiped clean. Two airplanes have flown into the World Trade Center and we believe it was a terrorist attack. I said, oh, okay, well, whew, um, let me go let me go quick change clothes. I'll be right there. So I went in and changed clothes. And while I was in the, and changing clothes in the locker room, uh, the alarm went off for fire alarm went off. And, and so I finished changing clothes, went out and, and, and I was in the, yeah. I was in the uh, Northwest version of the, the Northeast portion of the Pentagon. The airplane flew into the Southwest portion of the Pentagon. I didn't feel anything. But when I went out, I saw all these people flooding out. You know, I said 20, 25,000 of my closest friends. And I said, what happened? And they said, well, we just heard an airplane flew into the Pentagon. And, and I said, where, what? They said, we don't know. Because again, the Pentagon is so big, they did not feel it over there. And, uh, and so I just jumped in with, I, I jumped in with them for a while. And then I went, Hey, I'm the kind of the XO of the office for the assistant secretary of defense. I need to go around and see if I can, if our people are mustering at our muster location for fire drills and bomb scares and all of that. And we had a number of those fire drills, bomb scares. I go, 
I picked up a couple of other people that were, were part of our organization along the way. We went around the corner of the Pentagon and saw that that whole south parking lot, which is where we would have mustered, was completely filled with smoke. And so I said, okay, obviously we're not going to be going there. I got back, jumped in with the rest of the guys. We were heading for the river. We were told that everybody was supposed to go down to the Potomac River. So I went down to the Potomac River with everybody, and nobody knew what was going on. Everybody had heard that there were airplanes coming in. There were airplanes this. There was all these rumors going around. And I see, and some guy while I'm there, uh, he comes in and says, I'm looking for Colonel so-and-so. Does anybody know where Colonel so-and-so is? And I said, I'm not Colonel so-and-so, but can you get back in the building? He goes, yeah. I said, I'm coming with you. And I grabbed the two women who I was with, who were part of our organization. We went back uh, through all the barriers with the police and whatnot to get back into the building, which was completely empty, which is pretty weird, the Pentagon. I mean, there's people in there. There's thousands of people in there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365. I mean, Christmas Day, there'll be lights on and people moving around in that building. So we go back into this very empty building, and they went down to the center ring of the Pentagon where the um, in the middle of the Pentagon, we call it ground zero. Um, and I went looking for my boss because I was his kind of his EA. What's an EA? Uh, executive assistant to the yeah, assistant yeah, right. secretary of defense. And I found, I found him in a little room uh, where we're trying to monitor what was going on in the national military command center, but they were getting driven out of there by the acrid smoke coming from the fire, which was still burning. And, uh, and at that point, the Secretary of Defense left and he came up to where we were, which was an executive briefing room. And I happened, it was just kind of a weird situation. I'm in a room kind of the size of my kitchen that on one wall has got a television screens, video teleconference screens with the White House and the, the FAA, the CIA, the um, the NSA, all of these organizations there, FBI, and and he's the Secretary of Defense was uh, Don Rumsfeld. He's sitting at the table there, and I'm there with three other guys, and we didn't know what was going on, and he didn't know what was going on. Nobody knew what was going on. That an airplane had just crashed in Pennsylvania was was a rumor that they were verifying, but the FAA said at that point that there were at that point, five or six other airplanes that were not responding to IFF on their way into the continental United States. We knew we were under attack. So were there going to be four or five more airplanes that were going to come in and hit New York City or San Francisco? They were coming into San Francisco. It, it, that was that level of uncertainty. All the airplanes in, at uh, Andrews Air Force Base had been scrambled and, and they were up there. It was a chaotic situation. Emotionally, what are you feeling? Are you going into problem solving mode or there's partial panic. I'm just kind of, I'm there being just watching what's going on and I'm, nobody knows what to do. So uh, a guy who was the EA to secretary Rumsfeld, who was a three-star Navy Admiral named Ed Giambastiani, he said, we need to put together a coordination cell for us with all the other agencies. So I started helping him with that. We needed, a, we needed somebody who's talking to FAA, the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, all of these different organizations that are, that are players in this situation because we also knew that the Capitol was under, under threat. 
We didn't know whether there was going to be another airplane coming in or a, a handheld nuclear bomb or what. You know, all of these were possibilities. And so and the capital had been, had been evacuated, but we still had to respond to this. We had to still run the country. And, and so that's what we did that night until about 1.30 in the morning. And I had never, by, it wasn't until 1 in the morning that I actually saw videos of the airplanes hitting the Twin Towers because I was so busy just running around in that little area trying to set up those little liaison cells, trying to get some of these organizations to have a person come over and join us who could talk to their their team. And then the next morning, uh, <clears throat> I went home. My parents lived about maybe five miles away. I went and got about four hours of sleep, came back the next came back and and we just kind of picked up where we left off. And um, and it was, what the hell's going on? When's the next shoe gonna drop for the next several days? And yeah, that's 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 what it was. It was it was chaos and trying to organize trying to create order out of chaos. It's kind of interesting, right? The Pentagon is the hub of admirals, generals, all these higher upper military command positions. And <clears throat> now they're put in this, yeah, this almost combat position for, for half a second or under attack. What did you, would you say you were, you were proud of the manner of which they conducted the operations? Was there some that some other individuals that weren't exactly what you would have expected for somebody in a upper command position? I was pretty impressed with what was happening, how people came together. I mean, the Pentagon is set up as a large bureaucracy to, to make slow, deliberate decisions. Uh, and the, and the farther away from the Pentagon you get, the more, I'd say the more prepared they are for, for quick decision-making and taking action. And so, but we had a lot of people who had that kind of experience there. We had to take care of the Pentagon too. The Pentagon was still on fire for four more days. And we just lost uh, 200 some people, I think, in, in the building itself, apart from the people that were in the airplane. And so we're dealing with that. And then, then, there, then there was kind of contingency planning, like what happens if a dirty nuclear bomb is set off, set off in Washington, D.C.? What happens if the Pentagon, if we can't control this fire and we can't work out of the Pentagon? Well, there are alternate sites which are set up for, that were set up back in the Cold War for the potential nuclear. And these were kind of in mothballs, but we had to go resurrect these things. I mean, they were still around and they were sort of set up, but they, they hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to that. And so I went, went up with several people to try to set up an alternate command center in case the Pentagon went down. And we then put people in those places and keep them informed in case suddenly we had to shift everything to, to be run out of there. I, it, it, was, it was really an interesting situation. We had no playbook. We were shooting from the hip. And I'm assuming that's confidential information as to where these alternate locations are, but it, is it a far distance away or it's still within the state? Uh... I didn't get there. We didn't. We didn't walk there. Let's put it that way. Okay. And uh, and so I mean, it's, they're close enough to where you can get there within a day or so. And uh, I think there's a bunch of alternate sites. We looked at several alternate sites. We looked at some that uh, we looked at, at some, and then the suitability. And it wasn't going to like we were going to just go to one. We were going to have to have several of them because the one was not was not set up to be able to run the Army, Navy, the Air Force. And the whole whole U.S. military just 
I mean, the Pentagon's got 25,000 people working it or more. And so, so we had, we, it was, it was, uh, it wasn't probably in for another, gosh, probably another month before everybody came back to work at the Pentagon. Mm. Do you, do you witness anybody breaking down though, as far as, you know, individuals panicking? I didn't No, I, I mean, I was just kind of do trying to do, be where I needed to be, to do my job. But I did have several friends who were right there where they where the airplane hit, and they're and they were in their office, and all of a sudden, you know, the ceiling caved in onto their desk, and there was a fire all around them, and they had to you know get out of there. And um, one guy, one friend of mine who was my next door neighbor, my next tour, he he goes out of his office door and he looks to his left, and it's just flames, a wall of flames, and he of course he, he turns right. <laughs> and uh, and he got out of there, but I mean, by that close. And, and a year later, September 11, 2002, I was still in the Pentagon. And I went to the memorial service, and I'm sitting uh, in the stands that they'd set up for the memorial service right there where the where the airplane had gone in, and it, it had been largely rebuilt at that point. Uh, but I'm sitting next to a woman, and we're chatting, and uh, and sh she was on the phone with her husband. And her and her husband's talking about what's happened in New York City, and that we're all you know we're everything's changed now. We gotta we gotta try to figure out what to do with we're under attack. And then the line went dead, and he was killed right there. Wow. So it, it different people had different experiences, uh, and I have, a, I have another friend who was very much involved in rescuing people from the inside of the ground zero area who were, cause they could actually get into the air, that, that airplane and the fire and the damage actually broke all the way through for all five uh, levels of the Pentagon. Uh, and he was involved with getting people out who were still alive or injured that were close enough to them. And, and, uh, and there were people who were burned and injured. And there's some amazing stories of heroism from that day. So finish with your career and, and kind of move into the, the next phase, which I know you're the, that's where you're focusing most of your time on currently uh, character, character and physical development, but you worked with seal team six back in desert storm. Am I right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. As the, was it operations officer? I was the operations officer during that window. Yeah. And what, so what does that mean? What were your duties for that? Well, uh, <laughs> It was it was funny because during Desert Shield, we were all getting ready to go, and we had uh, and I had actually gone over with the general who was in charge of us to go over there to evaluate what was happening. We didn't have any forces in there at the time, other than a small liaison cell. What was the name of the general who ran Desert Shield, Desert Storm? Uh, but anyway, we uh, we didn't um, we weren't involved in it, and he didn't like special forces. He didn't like any, and so he didn't want us in. Why didn't you like special forces? Uh, probably something left over from from some resentment during from Vietnam War. What do you think would trigger that in Vietnam War with the special uh, forces? I mean, the cultural differences between SEALs, special forces guys, and the conventional military was pretty significant. I mean, those guys were were follow the rules. Everything had it was very structured. And part of and and then these SEAL guys and these special forces guys show up with their hair not cut. They're not in the same uniforms. They call each other by their first name. They're 
they 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 kind of do their own thing in, a, in their own way and and that and to people who've been brought up in every there's a one there's a marine corps way or an army way and then there's that, that there's the right way and there's and that's the army way and then there's everybody else and so and it probably has something to do with some kind of arrogant stuff that guys did but in any case bottom line was he didn't like us didn't trust us thought we would come in on and do our own agenda and so he kept us out of the war until until there was no other option and then he brought in army guys to go look for scuds in the in the um in the western desert of iraq and uh and because nobody else could do that and 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 they these scuds were being launched into israel and uh and that was and, and israelis were getting pretty pissed and so the Israelis said, okay, you guys get this under control or else we're going to come into the war and we're going to be on our own agenda. And nobody wanted that to happen. That, could, that would have been really explosive in the Middle East. So the general, what was, it, what was his name? You know, Metcalf. You know, Schwarzkopf. 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 Yeah. <laughs> talking, talking to my advisor over here. <laughs> so... Uh, so General Schwarzkopf did not like SEALs and did not like Special Forces guys. But he finally says, okay, there's, we've got to get these scuds. There's nobody else who can do it. So they put together this army, this army group, uh, and there was a Tier 1 organization that went over there. But we were left out of it. The SEALs were left out of it. And we're sitting back here in Virginia Beach doing exercises while the rest of the country's at war. And it was a bad time. Uh, our guys were really unhappy because we had not been in any war since Vietnam. We had some little contingencies, but here's a war that we're in, and we're being, and we're left home. Uh, morale was pretty bad, but we were every single day. I came to work, and we were ready to go on short notice, and and for a long time, I thought every day I came to work, I said goodbye to my wife, so I may not be home today because that had happened several times. I came to work on a regular day and didn't come home. And so for a long time, we were ready to go. Finally, there was a mission that um, they needed. To, they needed some boats, and we had the best boats. And so a boat debt from our command actually went over there and, uh, and did some support to operations up in the, in, the, uh, in the Gulf there. And that was pretty much it, though. We did not get, a, we did not get any ground forces into that war. So my job as the operations officer was just kind of managing all the guys. We also still had to have people on, on call for contingency, and we still had training stuff going on. We still had all the regular stuff going on in the command, and we had this big morale problem that we're sitting at home, you know, going to the range and going on exercises while the rest of the guys are often uh, fighting, fighting our nation's war. Mm. How do you influence morale at that point? Uh <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, I was a, I was a new guy in that command. Uh, there were a lot of guys that had been in that command for years and years. And, and as, as, as a new guy, I didn't have a whole lot of, I was kind of a, I didn't have a whole lot of credibility. I, I just let people talk, let people vent, let them know that we we're doing the best we could to get them into the war. And, uh, we did get some guys into the war and we tried to get as many guys over there as possible just so they could get in. Because that's what we do, and we didn't. And it's, I mean, you hate to be the guy sitting at home. What was, what was our line? It says, "Frogman, frogman, where you been? Sitting at home watching the war on CNN." Yeah. How did SEAL training evolve from 
I mean, you were in for, for several, several dozens of years, a lot of years, <laughs> but how did you see it evolve to what it currently is today? What are differences, major differences? Well, the main, the main difference happened while I was uh, the Commodore of the East Coast SEAL teams and the Admiral at the time was a guy named Eric Olson. And he, he had the vision and it was a good vision and he made it happen that what was, when I first came in and, and, and previously, uh, SEALs went through BUDS training, which was about, it grew to be about six months long. It used to be in the 50s, it used to be about six weeks long. And then it kind of like kept getting longer and bigger. And then it was about, for a long time, it was about six months long. And for a long time, we had an East Coast training and a West Coast training. And then they consolidated all on the East Coast. And so, uh, but then the guy would come, he'd finish BUDS, and BUDS was basic underwater demolition team, underwater demolition SEAL training. Then they would go to a SEAL team or an underwater demolition team, and they would go through another level of training. And, uh, and, and for the SEAL teams, it was called SBI, SEAL Basic Indoctrination. And it was about a three-month-long window, which took you to the intermediate and, and, and touched on advanced level, small unit stuff, learning whole different sets of weapons and, and, and more sophisticated techniques and tactics and whatnot. Well, he decided we're going to go ahead and put all of that at buds. And so the guy shows up at a SEAL team and he is, he's, he's ready up around. He's ready to go into a platoon. He's already had not only basic training, but intermediate and some advanced level. And he's ready to go right into a platoon. That was not the case um, for, for 30 some odd years before that. And so that was one change. So it went from six months to almost 14 months when they put, and they added this SQT, SEAL Qualification Training, which is about another six to eight months-ish uh, on the, onto it. And so now when guys finish up, they've had a lot more training when they show up at a SEAL team. And they're ready to go into platoon. They're, they've, they're, they're good. That's the main thing. And it's continuing to change and evolve. Um, because we've got guys going, graduating from a SEAL team, and they go into a SEAL team. Some guys will graduate, go into a SEAL delivery vehicle team. They have to go through another level of training. Um, and uh, and the level of training and the level of experience or expertise which is required is continuing to ratchet up as our as our forces and as the wars that we're fighting get more, require more sophistication. Mm. Sorry, there's a lot of noise sometimes. I can't really hear you on. Well, one thing I thought was really interesting that you talked about as far as like the mental evolution of SEAL training, you mentioned SEALs are starting to implement things like meditation, like uh, what are the water tanks again, the deprivation tanks? Yeah, well, there's, a, there's the cold water tanks and there's float tanks and whatnot. Float tanks, and, and there are some who are doing that, but it's not a, it's not, this is kind of part of my crusade now uh, to get that to be part of a, a more fully integrated part of the SEAL training, but it's, it's being, it's slowly coming in, uh, it's gaining momentum, but it's not part of the mainstream of the culture at this point. Okay. I think when we had a conversation before this podcast, yeah, you were saying before it was, just shoving Red Bull and Ambient down, say like the Team Six members, but now things are slowly shifting into more modern approaches to. Yeah, well, it's not just training. Team Six. It was just kind of all the SEALs were, were doing that, and it's the whole mindset of I'll do what I need to do to get through today, get through tomorrow, and worry about the consequences later. 
And, um, and so guys in the SEAL teams were doing that same, doing the same stuff. And that's, I think, part of why, part of why we've had so many problems with PTSD and, uh, and mental health issues afterwards is, got, is guys are not taking care of, of the mental aspects of rest, recovery, and whatnot. And so that people are becoming more and more aware of that. And there's been now a lot more information put out. And more guys are buying into it than, than, than before. We still have a ways, quite a ways to go. We still don't have a lot of buy-in from the senior guys, the senior enlisted, or even the senior officers. Why do you think that is? It's just not been part of the culture. Hmm. But I'll tell you what, uh, I was trying to do this back 20 years ago when I was a group commander, uh, and it's a lot farther along now than it was then. And there are more and more people. I just got done, when we last spoke, I was in Virginia Beach, I told you about that. That whole program is, uh, uh, the Virginia High Performance Center program is is in adding to that. We've got a human performance program, which has got a group of people who are advocating for that. It's kind of growing from the bottom up. And I think that a lot of the leaders aren't aware that a lot of their people are really into this, but the Master Chiefs aren't. The 05s and 06s aren't because it wasn't what they did. So uh, that's, that's just going to take time. Okay. As far as leadership goes, that's one other thing that we talked about as far as develop, because that, that was part of your, your duties, developing young and some more senior leadership. And one question I thought of is, what is a noticeable tell, if you will, in determining or when recruiting a strong leader? What are some tells potentially that somebody's a poor leader? Well, one of the things that, that one of the things that's happened, that, which is a lot better than it used to be, I was thrust into leadership positions way before I was ready. And, and then I, and I realized that. And when I got to be a senior guy, I kept trying to say, hey, you guys, don't be in such a big hurry to be a platoon commander or to get, to get early, early promoted. You want to be as prepared as you possibly can be to be a platoon commander, which basically means have as much experience as you can have. So we give a, so we need to give guys that opportunity and they and when and for example, your whole audience is familiar with the Eddie Gallagher case. Well, the kid who was in charge of Eddie Gallagher was not well enough prepared to deal with Eddie Gallagher. He's a good kid, good officer, and he was the honor man of his buds class, which is a strong indicator to me that he had a lot of potential. But he did not have enough self-confidence and maturity and experience to deal with a psychopath as a platoon chief. Could you briefly explain that story for those that don't know? Eddie Gallagher was in the news a lot. He was the guy who supposedly um, who was taken to court for uh, for stabbing to death a uh, a prisoner in Iraq, and and he finally was convicted of having his picture taken with that guy uh but the reality is he he did a whole lot more he did a whole lot of bad stuff before that all he got convicted of was was have taking his picture as a with this dead guy he claimed that he didn't kill him but he's but we've got a lot of he he, he, was, he was he was not somebody who i think he was not a good model for a seal mm. but the thing is is he looked like he he had he looked the part Great shape, square jaw, blue eyes, and articulate. 
Uh, I mean, almost a poster card, a uh, picture poster guy of what you might think of as a, as a SEAL chief. But the reality was there. And the platoon off, and the officer wasn't ready to deal with that. He didn't know how to deal with it. He wasn't sure what was going on. And he, and he, and he didn't know the realities of what his responsibilities were versus what, what the mythology that he might have bought into about what SEALs do in combat. What are some, again, potential tells to weed out these individuals that aren't fit for these different positions? You gotta, you gotta watch them and put them in situations and let them make decisions. And okay. uh, if, 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 you're, if, you're, uh, if you're making all the decisions for them, then you don't get a chance to see. And good leaders will let their people make decisions and they'll give them left and right boundaries and will coach them as to why and give them feedback afterwards. Leaders make other leaders. They create leaders, they develop leaders. The coaching I give to guys is, you've gotta give your people a chance to lead. And then you've gotta coach them. And, 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 and the way you learn is by making mistakes. And if you hammer guys to make mistakes, then they're gonna be scared to death to make decisions. So you have to just, there's a, there's a piece there that, how do you develop your leaders rather than get just, if your job, you see your job is primarily just getting the job done, that all you do is you just get the job done as efficiently as possible. You just tell people what to do. You know how to do it. You've been in the, but you're not developing leaders that way. And I completely agree with you. One of the best leaders I've had was actually in Knowles. Uh, his name is Jake. I wish I remembered his last name. You might know him, but he was, he was the leader when I was with your daughter, Roberta. And yeah, it was the, his approach of putting trust in us to a point where sometimes we were a little unnerved as in we thought, wait, liability wise, can Knowles even do that? Can we be given the reins like this to make these decisions, to be out on our own? Cause you know, some of the times we were just out on our own for multiple days without them whatsoever. And whenever we'd bring something up as far as an idea or a, an approach to an objective, every time he was just like, yeah, just try it out. And Sometimes we were wrong. Sometimes we were right. And you know that he knew what probably the most efficient method of doing it was, but he would never, he would rarely share it. And if he did, he would bring it, he would bring it to your attention, but in a very non probing or non directive way. Yeah. Well, and, and Knowles does that pretty well. And that's really not, that's, that's not what we don't, teach people to do that in the military very well because we're focused on getting the job done. And, and if, if, uh, if you always give the job to the guy who knows how to do it, everybody else just falls in line. They don't learn. Mm. And so the whole leader of the day model is really good. Uh, having been a Knowles instructor, the hard part is when you're exhausted and you know the way, and you want and, and you want to get there as quickly as possible because your feet hurt and you're tired to to keep your mouth shut when you know where you are and they don't know where they are and you know the best way to get there and they don't i didn't always do that as well as i should have this jake was very good at doing that i think eventually he he took over he actually asked us he said hey I think this is a great learning opportunity, but it was getting to the point where it was at risk. We didn't have any supplies to sleep out and we were not going to make the objective. It was getting dark. He said, Hey, would you guys like to keep going or would you like for me to step in? And he did that. He didn't even do it like that. He did it in a, such a way that it was, 
I don't know. It was it was just smooth. That's all I can say. It was smooth. Um, well, I have I I, may, I didn't make the objective a couple of times, and those were some of the best learning experiences that our whole group ever had. Because then we checked to find out who whether we whether guy the leader of the day had prepared to not get the objective. And in one case, they hadn't. They assumed that they were already. They just kind of went through that little drill. Ah, uh, well, you know. And then we got. Well, we had to stay out on our own, and we had. We had one tent for six people, mm. and the other group had four, and they had two tents. Yeah. And so uh, I said, "Hey, well, we just have to make this work, right?" Yeah. And we did. I guess a, a question I have, and one thing I learned in Knowles is the different types of leadership or group decision making approaches. So one is the directive, right? And I think this comes into play when there's something that's life-threatening. It's, hey, move, move to your left now, right? So the leader is giving the directive. Then it goes down the path of consultative almost, as in, let's let's go down this gully southwest. What do you guys think? That would be an example. Then there's actual consultative where you start with, what do you guys think? Which way do we go? But I'll make the decision in the end. And then you keep going down the path of, to a point where it's a vote. So you have your group make a vote or a consensus, which is even more time consuming. It was very interesting to learn those different approaches. Yeah, we call it consultative one and consultative two. And the consultative one was, I think we got to go this way. Has anybody got it? Anybody, do I, am I missing something here? Anybody see something I don't see? And then there's the, hey, what do you, th what do you all think we ought to do? And uh, again, each one of them takes more time. But on that, on that trajectory that you laid out, there's another one that's, which is pretty interesting as well. It's called delegate. Right. And that is, uh, I want you to make a decision. Okay. Yep. You decide which way to go. And there's another set of, of caveats that go with that, uh, you know, and how much coaching do you give? When, at what point, and how would you take that responsibility back and why? And how would you do that without undermining, without completely destroying the confidence of the individual? And all of those things, are, which I think are really interesting because the delegate piece is where you, if you're on my Knowles course, and I say, you decide which way to go. And then I, how much am I going to help you? And how much, uh, so that, that, IP, that I think within the boundaries, the leaders are still, always still responsible if I delegate to you so I can give you left and right boundaries and uh, make sure that uh, you're not going to put the whole group at risk. But particularly if we're at a, if we're in an exercise, but I also one time on an exercise, I got, I, I, I got really sick. I was in charge. I was the OIC. I was out in the field. We were on a four, four day mission. I got really sick. I could basically turn, I mean, I was all I could do to hang on just to keep up. And it was kind of like for me, I was going, I, I, I'm, I'm dying. I'm going to have to quit at the next stop. We get to the next stop, take a break. I said, oh, maybe I can go one more. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe then I'll quit. And that's how I kind of got through the whole, the whole night. But I turned the mission over to the guys. I took the next senior guy and said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I've got all I can do just to, just to stay, stay in the patrol. I can't. And they did a great job. They just kind of would come back and tell me what, what decisions they'd made and why. And I'd go, yeah, whatever. You got it. And they did a great job. And then, and then a day and a half later, or a day later, I was well enough to take back over the patrol. 
Would you say those different leadership methods are implemented in the teams? Are they using mostly directive or they often go to a consensus form? Uh, the best leaders, the, the most confident leaders will go to, will move in that consultative two version and may go to the consensus one. Uh, but it depends on how well the team has worked together. Uh, a young guy who's in charge for the first time is is all, always kind of, the case with, with me and most guys is they're trying to prove themselves. And they don't want to look like they're, un they don't know what the heck to do in front of their men or women uh, for, if we're in a, in a mixed gender group. So they've kind of got to, you know, they feel like I got to assert themselves. We're going to go do this. We're going to do that. The more confident guys will go, here's the way I see it. How do you all see it? And they'll ask for feedback and input. And then, then you've got to deal, be ready to make the decision when you've got a bunch of conflicting ideas and stand by it and deal with the people who disagree with your decision. So that's why I say the more experience you have, the better you're going to be able to, to, to develop other people and bring other people's ideas in. And they've got to get confidence in you as well. And that was kind of a cool thing that you see in the Lone Survivor movie, that decision they had to make where there's that conversation of, do we let this hostage go? Do we kill this hostage? Do we bring this hostage with us? And eventually the leader, the officer coming in and saying, he let his group talk. And then to a point he had to come to a decision. Yeah. Which seemed to be a tough Well, according to Latrell, they took a vote. And there's been some discussion of that as what would, would he have killed these guys if the, vote, if the, uh, if the guys had voted to, to kill the, the prisoners. And he, I, I think he would have overridden that. Uh, Michael Murphy would have overridden that. I don't think he would have committed murder. Um, that said, one of the problem, one of the reasons why that mission failed is all of us experienced guys kind of went, Hey, it wasn't a let them go or kill them. There were those were two options, but there were three or four. There were two. There was option three, option four as well, that you didn't even consider, and that was because they were inexperienced. It was a very inexperienced young group. Oh, was it? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the obvious decision would have been at that point: the mission's kanked. You're compromised. Now you keep these guys, you call the helicopter in, you call off the mission, you call, you keep these guys. And when the helicopter lands, you get on, you let them go. Yeah, I did think that, but that was just me watching the movie. So uh, that's, that was, that's the most, the most, uh, if, if the mission had been really that important, um, maybe you keep these guys with you for a while. But you also call, you also call back and get, and get guidance. Hey, here's what's, here's what's happened. Now, we think we're compromised. These people are going to be missed back in their village. Uh, here's what my recommendation is. There's, there's different ways you could have handled that. They could have handled that. But it was not a choice between either kill them or let them go. Right. So was the movie accurate in the sense that they ended up letting them go like that? Well, there's only one guy that knows, and that's Marcus Luttrell. And, okay. um, and, there has been some. There's been some uh, other input. Some of the some of the uh, Afghani's who were looking for them and fought and fought these guys apparently have come forward and said that the group, the number of people that 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 actually attacked the troop was not as large a number as Latrell believed, and that's easy to understand why Latrell might think that. Didn't have to be that many. 
but it was uh, so we don't know what actually really happened. And I'm not, in, you know, and, and Luttrell's got everybody's got. I'm not. I'm not saying that he in any way tried to deliberately change the story, but he was under a lot of stress as well, and he was trying to survive, and he was watching his guy, his friends get killed. Speaking of these. Like at this point, they've almost become celebrity Navy SEALs. But Jocko Willing, in your knowledge or you know word of mouth, what, what was his leadership style like? I, I never worked with. I know Jocko. I've met him several times. I've talked to him. I had him come out and speak at Buds once. Um, so I don't know him well. Uh, but he, my son worked for him for a while, and a couple of other young guys that I knew worked for him, and they they were they really liked him as a leader. They liked his decisiveness. Uh, they like he li they liked the way he treated people. His whole thing about uh, hey hey boss we got a problem. Good. What do you mean good? Well, this gives us an opportunity to see how well prepared we are to deal with that problem. Hmm. And you know that was that was always his response when people came to him with a hey the helicopter's canceled. We you know we thought we could do this the helicopter. Good. What do you mean good? Well, that gives us an opportunity to do something else. He's always you know, shifting the focus from the negative to the positive on the problems they had. And, uh, and so, uh, by all accounts, from people who've, who worked for him that I've heard, uh, they really liked working for him. And they, they trusted him, and he was a real good leader. What recommendation would you give to young men and women to develop as leaders starting off? Seek opportunities to lead, and when they're in leadership, ask for guidance and ask for help. I, I also think reading is, is a, a really valuable tool to read about the experiences of others and, uh, and put those experiences in your kit bag because your own experience is only that much. But if you start reading about what other people have done, that broadens all that experience, comes, it broadens what you're doing. and even better is if you read uh, read with other people and talk about what how these decisions were made and that's why I like I like reading groups I like getting this, I mean this book I just read that I'm re discussing with a bunch of a bunch of uh, active duty and retired seals uh, on Matterhorn is is a it's it's a great book on leadership because you see this young guy uh, who shows up in Vietnam uh, as an officer shows up and he's put into a platoon that's got a whole bunch of combat experience and he's in charge and he's unsure of himself and scared to death. But you're inside his head and he's, and he's kind of walking through how he's dealing with the situations and he matures as a leader all the way through. A lot of close calls. And so that's what I would recommend. And that's also what General Mattis recommends too. Um, General Mattis's book, um, uh, Call Sign Chaos. Uh, I've not read it yet, but I will. It's highly recommended as a leadership book. And reading it by yourself, you're going to get maybe 20% out of it. Read it to you and a couple of your friends reading it, and then getting together and say, "What did you get out of it? What did you learn from it? What can you bring? What will you put into your into your toolbox for how you're going to lead from what he taught? Mm -hmm. uh, that will amplify double or triple what one gets out of any kind of book like that. Another thing, when we had our previous conversation, you mentioned as young leaders to take risks, to make those mistakes. Yeah. And I've certainly come to find that. I, I remember one of my mistakes 
in Noel's first semester hiking, there's a point where I don't think anybody specifically was the leader of the day, but you know, as, as the instructors tend to do, took a step back. So we were left to our own devices and we were just trying to make a decision. I think we had to either go, we had two options. We thought we either had to go North or maybe Northeast. And I was under pretty strong interpretation of the top topography that we had to go North. And it got to a point where we were in that nothing's getting done phase. And we were two veterans at the time. We were both, all right, I don't care which way we go, but let's, let's go somewhere. We're on this ridge. It's windy. We're cold. A decision is better than no decision. But for some reason we were still in a, just a not getting anywhere place. So me, my, I guess, anxiety, if you will, or my need to move, I was like, all right, I'll go scout. So I, I went my direction North. I didn't go that far. I only went maybe a hundred yards. And I think I already had that preconceived notion of I'm right. So I went a hundred yards, came back. And my mistake was getting back to the group and saying, it, it's that way. Trust me. And they still wanted to have the discussion. I was like, just trust me. I went <laughs> and and then it opened up a, a can of worms later because the two options were mine or this other woman who thought we should go northeast. And ultimately, another one of the females decided, let's take a vote. And they voted for my way. So we went. But my way was off. It was not the correct way. I read the topo wrong. I didn't go that far, so I didn't actually know. And it ended up being a cannon. We had to divert and go that northeastern direction. Didn't really add much time or it didn't turn into much of a issue. But still, we wasted a lot of time doing that. And then there was this terrible group dynamic of it, it broke into a sexism thing. One of the instructors brought it up to that person while we were hiking out. Do you think we they went that way because Vincent's a man and you're a woman? And then it really tore apart the whole group dynamic. But I still recall and I still to this day, it's, you know, you have those moments in your life where you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But saying trust me, coming back with fairly poor information and saying trust me, it's that way. It's not a good leadership way. Yeah, of doing the next things. time you say trust me, what are they going to say? They're going to just, they're going to go, ah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can, I can imagine it. Did you have, how the debrief go? Terrible. It's probably the, the worst. I felt like the worst human being. It's not just the debrief, but the hike out. I felt like the worst human being ever. Cause this group dynamics, it was something just weird. We we're all hiking alone. And did you apologize? I mean, did you say, Hey, yeah. mea culpa, I, I screwed up. I apologized the, before the briefing. So we're still not quite at our, our tent spot, but still didn't amount to much. And then, yeah, then the sexism thing was dropped at the briefing. And, you know, I, it's never something that ever I ever thought of that ever came to my mind. And still to this day, we a lot of us revisited that later on within the, the Knowles expedition. And we think something else was occurring. But still, it was one of those things where, oh, if if you're sexist, if you're racist, sometimes it's you don't realize it. 
And it definitely made me think for quite a, a while within that course of ugh, like maybe maybe there was the sexism in that decision, in that vote process of everyone voting and and me saying, trust me, you know, I felt terrible is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you, you kind of put your credibility on the line when when you say, trust me, you better be pretty damn sure, because it's a different thing to say, you know, I think this is the way to go. But but I'm you know, we got to go and give it give it a chance. So you learn you learn an important lesson. So there's one of those things that is, yeah, you, you feel badly about it now, but look at how much you've learned from it. You're not going to do that again. All right. As far as an older leader goes, somebody that's got more experience, what are some pitfalls to avoid, though, to make sure that you do keep on growing? Well, I, in, in my case, uh, I would, I think it's just constantly be having the humility to want to keep learning and, uh, and to take, take risks in your own in your own work, in your own life, and continuing to learn that way, and, and and to have the humility to kind of go, maybe I'm wrong, because maybe you're wrong in almost every decision you make, but you got to, you know, you got to make decisions, you got to commit to them. Uh, but as one gets older, in my case, as I've gotten older, I've gotten quite a bit more humble and less sure of myself uh, in in the decisions that I make. Uh, particularly when they affect other people. So uh, I'm a lot more confident in the decisions that affect me. So anyway, that's, that would, that would probably be the best advice I could have is just have, have the humility to, uh, to know that you don't, what you don't know. And, and again, it's, I'm not the first guy to say that kind of the older you get, the more you learn, the more you really, how little you know, and uh, how much there is still to learn. And I mean, I'm still learning all the time. And, uh, and I just, the books I'm reading, I'm learning so much stuff I wish I'd known when I was, when I was a young man of 40. An old man's mind and a young man's body is the ultimate dream that no one can achieve. Captain, you, again, you were the first Navy SEAL that we've had on the show. Any advice for the young men and maybe women in the near future that want to go down that route? Make sure you have an what you're getting into to begin with because you're going to make a lot of sacrifices uh, to, to do that and there's a lot of people who kind of get buy into the glamour and there is a lot of really cool opportunities to do that but there's other opportunities elsewhere as well to do that sort of thing i mean i, I work with i work with and mentor people who sacrifice a lot to get through this program and then they don't get through so my, you know, I, I said, okay, this door closed, another one's, this is going to open up another door for you. And think of all the things you learned getting ready to do this, how much more exercise you got, all the, the training, the people you met, and all of the things that you've learned. Uh, and so if, you, if it does work, then, then great. And if it doesn't work, then you, you veer off and take all of that to the bank with you in another pathway. Um, I, th I still think that the mental piece is is huge, uh, and and it's it's and it needs to go hand in glove with the physical piece, and uh, and the two are not really separate because you're basically the mind and the body are, are just are are actually very closely integrated. So anytime you're, and like I said before, to prepare for it, you you do really difficult things, and and you put yourself in situations where you 
you're struggling with you're mentally struggling with yourself decide to keep going and when to, and when to actually there is a time when it's time to back off as well uh, I mean if you're lost at night certain and you keep going you might be getting farther and farther away from where you need to go there's a good judgment says okay maybe I need to stop here and rest get some sleep eat some food and to tack, tackle this problem again in the morning um, so uh, so what, what do I do on the on the mental piece which is which is uh, I mean I meditate I do a, I do a breathing protocol uh, and I'm working on on some focus things, and and one of the things that I learned at this this uh, intensive wellness program that I went through with that's run by a, a retired SEAL is that when you're exercising, you can actually exercise your mind and your body at the same time by focusing on each individual rep that you're doing and doing it absolutely perfectly. Instead of what I used to do is just crank out junk reps, uh, which is just kind of quantity over quality. And your mind is out wandering. You're listening to the music. You're doing something. And you're just cranking out push-ups or pull-ups or sit-ups or, or or dumbbell presses or whatnot. But the really, but you can actually train your mind and your body at the same time by focusing on each rep, giving it a hundred percent focus. And and that ability to focus, and focus through pain is one of the most important things that that uh, that not only Navy SEALs have to do, but people have to do in any kind of in any walk of life. Now, when you mean focus on a rep, what does that mean? Are you th when you're doing push-ups, are you just cranking out numbers, or are you doing them really uh, slow, careful, and properly? And when I was doing at this program, I had a uh, our, my coach, who was a certified strength conditioning coach. She gave me stuff to do I'd never done before, and she kept my and she made sure I was focusing on what I was doing, because I'd never done it before, and you know, having my body in the right position, doing it slowly, doing it properly, as opposed to just kind of sloppily getting through it. That's kind of what I mean. Gotcha. All right, retired Navy SEAL Captain Bob Schultz. Thanks so much for taking the time today. It was my pleasure. Enjoyed it, Vince. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Well, good luck.